Well, uh, welcome to uh, the library talk here. This is, uh, is this the first of the spring semester? All right, so uh, with uh, Dr. Brian Chappell, uh, thanks for coming out. Uh, this is going to be real laid back, um, kind of off the cuff. We've got a couple guiding questions here, but uh, my purpose here will just be to kind of get a good conversation going and learn from Dr. Chappell. Topic is Christocentric preaching um, and Christocentric hermeneutics by default. Um, and so, um, I, I don't, you probably already know, I'm probably not telling you anything new about Dr. Chapel, but he's a senior pastor of Grace Presbyterian Church in Peoria, Illinois. Uh, he served as president and chancellor of Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis from 1994 to 2013. And he received a PhD from Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. And he's also authored several books, maybe one of his more popular ones is uh, Christ-Centered Preaching, which I have right here in its newest uh, edition. So, um, so yeah, you'll want to get your hands on that. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think I've told you anything you don't already know, but maybe, uh, Dr. Chappell, you can tell us uh, uh, a little bit of uh, maybe a little personal information about your family, maybe a little-known fact about you that, uh, <laughs> that some of us might want to know. Uh, let's see. My family, I have, uh, I have four children, one wife. Uh, I have uh, five grandchildren and uh, one one year one new one All right. soon. Excellent. So, uh, uh, blessing to us in, in many ways. Uh, let's see. A little known fact. Um, what do you do when you're not writing books or thinking deeply about hermeneutical and homiletical issues? I fish. You fish. Okay. Yeah. All right. I love the fish. You like to fish. Okay. Yeah. Good. Got any fishermen in here? Hunters, all right, all right, so very good. Well, hey, uh, let me just start out by kind of framing uh, the discussion about Christ-centered hermeneutics, and what I would like you to discuss is what is it, what, it is, what is it not, um, and maybe uh, frame it within other similar movements that we've seen over the last 10 to 15 years, and maybe it, it dates back, I'm sure, well before then in some form or fashion, but there's no doubt that the, the term Christocentric has been a, a fairly recent, you know, um, development that has taken on iconic, you know, um, almost technical terminology. I'm thinking uh, works that have been seminal for me are Vaughn Roberts. Uh, anybody seen this little book here? Um, and then Graham Goldsworthy. So it was like, you know, movements coming out of Australia. Um, so just kind of situate your understanding of Christocentric preaching and hermeneutics in that landscape. So, I mean, at its core, I think Christocentric is synecdoche. It's, it's, yeah. it's part for the whole. And so you would say it is, it is not, you know, take out your decoder ring and make Jesus magically appear in every, you know, it's not Kabbalistic theory of you get Jesus out of every verse if you count the letters and divide by three in the Trinity. No, it's, it, you know, it's not that kind of thing. It's, it's saying how is the Lord unfolding the gospel message throughout Scripture in a way that culminates in Christ. And it, it typically, and you know, a, a book title, particularly when you're not only in somewhat a little vanguard of a movement, but, but picking up different threads, uh, a name like Christocentric or Christ-centered preaching can give people an impression that it may or may not be. It, it, there, there are three standard objections uh, to uh, Christ-centered preaching. 
which I think are typically um, from either straw men or misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, one is that it's allegorical interpretation. You know, that it's, it's some reappearance of the quadriga mm-hmm. that you're going to get, uh, as I said, Christ magically appearing or in some code appearing throughout Scripture. Um, it's, it's not allegorical. It's uh, trying to establish how the message of grace, God providing for people who cannot provide for themselves, is unfolding, maturing, pointing toward, lots of verbs that we use, the culminating message of Christ. And that means that a lot of what you're pointing to is the grace of the gospel that's unfolding and comes to fulfillment in Christ. Which, when you talk about grace, the second, I think, misunderstanding is that Christ-centered preaching is antinomian. That in some way you are contrasting the gospel with the law or the New Testament message with the Old Testament message. And uh, it's not that either. It's saying that the grace of the gospel is actually giving people heart motivation to respond to God with obedience uh, to his standards. After all, that is the good and safe path for his people. And so it's not Lutheran. It is, it is not a law-gospel split. It's not dispensational. Uh, it is saying that there is a motivational aspect to the gospel unfolding that results in heart obedience, not legalistic obedience. So it's not allegorical. It's not antinomian. And I would say that in the current uh, uh, conversation, it's not egocentric, which is kind of the last major critique that if all you're talking about is the gospel of grace as it applies to you and motivates you and unites you to Jesus, then this Christocentrality is ultimately just about you and Jesus and nobody else. Mm -hmm. So that all issues of ethics and mission and social justice are not on the page, to which I have to always respond, that's absolutely impossible. Mm -hmm. Because if what the grace of the gospel is doing is having you love Christ then you will inevitably love what and whom he loves. Mm -hmm. And whom does he love? He loves the unlovely and the outcast and the poor and the widow. And that is our obligation out of a Christocentric approach. So I I think that people grab pieces of Christocentrality and have legitimate biblical concerns, Mm -hmm. but may not read the, if you will, the totality of the expression and uh, sometimes uh, draw up responses that may be to straw men rather than to what actually is being said, or at times, as you just pointed out, they're referring to earlier branches of the movement and have not kind of continued to read into present development. Okay. All right. Um, So with your work in Christ-centered preaching, how have you seen it develop uh, relative to its early manifestations? Uh, How far back does that go? Uh, yeah, great question. So, I mean, those who would track it, and I, and I would say I'm talking more in the homiletics field, which is mine, than trying to deal with all the, all the disciplines. But, I mean, we would go back to Augustine in terms of trying to identify a, a gospel thread, a golden thread, a Christ message throughout the scriptures. We would recognize that a lot of that message disappeared in terms of Uh, how the Bible was to be rightly interpreted in, you know, the Alexandrian Antiochian uh, debates and the Quadriga and all of that. So in the the Reformation reclaim, you would say uh, 
certainly Calvin would be trying to resurrect, and people know about Calvin's notion of the centrality of Christ that people would have to rightly interpret by understanding the gospel that God is communicating all the scriptures. The name that most people don't know, who was far more systematic in a biblical theology, was Echolampadius. And so you have uh, both prior and contemporary to Calvin, Echolampadius actually systematizing a, a gospel or Christocentric approach to the scriptures. Uh, not well known, not followed, and both Calvin's approach and Echolampadius eclipsed um, by what became the battle over justification. So while you had unification of scripture efforts that were going in Calvin, Bootser, Echolampadius, certainly with the Counter-Reformation, the, the discussion of how to properly interpret and apply the scriptures you know, is going to be all about just, not all, but you know, focus on justification. Mm -hmm. And that, that happens really up until the American period, except in Holland. So you have the Dutch who pick up a little bit of Calvin in terms of the unity of the scriptures. And that unifying concept comes with some of the, the early Puritans in the U.S., and particularly is picked up by Jonathan Edwards. Mm -hmm. And of course, Jonathan Edwards is the one who is very different age, very different period, is actually contracted by the legislature of New Jersey to write the unified history of the scriptures, which he never gets done because mm -hmm. he dies. And so the movement kind of goes away again until you get Voss. Yeah. And so Voss comes in and he says, there is a biblical theology, there is a unity to the scriptures, there is an unfolding message of the gospel, and he defines it with his standard categories. You know, there, there is a progressive, organic, and redemptive unity to the scriptures. Then that gets eclipsed again. What happens after Voss? The battle for the Bible. Mm -hmm. And in the battle for the Bible at Princeton Seminary and then across the U.S., um, biblical theology, such as, as Edwards and Voss are advocating, again gets eclipsed. And it actually not only gets eclipsed, it gets attacked mm -hmm. because uh, the liberals take over biblical theology. Mm -hmm. uh, Voss is understanding that there is a progressive revelation, that God is not revealing all of his purpose and word at any point, but he's progressively revealing his word is taken over by liberal scholarship who says, well, well, yeah, that's what we've been saying all along. The Bible's not the last word. Yeah. You know, there's progression. And so evangelicals look at biblical theology as the enemy, mm -hmm. you know, kind of like this is being used against us. And so biblical theology becomes a bad word among evangelicals until the 1960s, and you have a few voices in the wilderness mm -hmm. who are saying, you know, Edwards was saying something. Voss is saying something. Calvin was saying something we need to remember. And so you get, you get um, Clowney mm -hmm. at, at Westminster, kind of an early voice, not, not writing all his methodology, but kind of saying there's something to this unifying mm -hmm. message. You get Gradanus at Calvin. Mm -hmm. uh, you've already mentioned Goldsworthy, you know, in Australia kind of doing a, a separate thing, but a coincident line coming together. And... Um, certain voices start picking up on it. Uh, in this country, uh, Clowney passes the baton to Keller, and uh, with Keller, it gets very much more popularized in the kind of the general evangelical conversation. Mm -hmm. and, and then people start picking up. So you have all kinds of voices from different disciplines now beginning to contribute. You know, I'm a summarizer. I kind of pick up what other people do. 
you, you get people, uh, you get the Van Hoosers of the world, you get the, uh, the, um, the people at odds at both Westminster and Gordon Conwell who began debating the issues, but it just gets in the conversation. And now that stream has diversified even more right. into different approaches. Yeah. So if you said how far, I'm sorry, you said how far back it goes, and so you open up my, uh, yeah. you open up my archive vault, and so I no, kind helpful. of say more than, than you may have intended. No, that brief history is, is very helpful, I think, for setting the stage for me the last 15 years. And I, um, you know, one of the first books I read was by Clowney uh, in my MDiv, and he, you guys seen this book or read it, and I had never, ever heard somebody unfold an Old Testament text uh, like this, it got me excited, and and then of course, as you know, a, a aspiring scholar and someone who was just new enough to be dangerous, uh, I started hearing things like, "Okay, yes, but," <laughs> right? So, uh, what you know, and you you, say, you mentioned some methodological issues, and and I I know Clowney is pretty formative for um, what this goes back to. Can you uh, discuss a little bit of? where maybe it's developed since, since Clowney and, and the unfolding mystery or mm -hmm. ways in which things have nuanced a bit? So if you, if you go past Voss and you would say things are being picked up again in the 1960s, um, Clowney is picking up saying there's something to unify things, right. but you have to say where, where, is it, where are his instincts and background? And Whereas Voss is primarily historically oriented, mm -hmm. you know, and we even use the terminology, redemptive historical method. It's clear that while Clowney appreciates and actually has kind of a foundation of his understanding, redemptive historic, where is this passage in the redemptive flow, mm -hmm. God's unfolding mm -hmm. history? But his, his method is primarily literary, not historical. Mm -hmm. So he picks up literary motifs, right. and, he's, and it, it, if you listen to Keller much, as Clowney trained Keller, it's what, it's what Tim's instinct is. Right. You know, uh, he, he will say, you know, what, what is uh, the rock that followed after them was Christ, 1 Corinthians 10. Well, what is the rock? And, and he'll go back to the Numbers passages and, or the Exodus passages. And he will talk a lot about rock, rock here, rock, and he'll use literary devices. Right. Okay. And um, I, I actually think Keller tends to be more accurate than Clowney was. Mm -hmm. uh, Clowney was more free with the text, mm -hmm. as it were, and not as uh, distinct about typology versus motif. Mm -hmm. And that got muddy in Clowney. And it's still muddy, as, as uh, a lot of the Old Testament scholars will attest, you know, what, what is a type mm -hmm. and what is not a type. Gradanus was doing something different. Again, Gradanus out of the Dutch schools. He's being almost exclusively early on in Sola Scriptura and the modern preacher in the ancient text. He's being historical. Yeah. Where do things fit in historical track? But by the time he gets to interpreting Christ in the Old Testament, or uh, uh, um, uh, I didn't get that right. What's, what's the name of it? Um, not interpreting Christ in the Old Testament. What is the name of that? Preaching Christ from the Old Testament. Uh, by the time he gets there, he has moved a lot toward Clowney, right? So he's picked up a lot of the literary motifs as well as the historical. Uh, Goldsworthy, writing over Australia, he doesn't give an inch, right? He, <laughs> yeah. he, he stays historical, right. right? He stays historical. 
you got people here who are kind of later to the game, but recognize you can't preach um, from the Old Testament with no awareness of where the story is going. Yeah. But their instincts are not either literary or historical. Their instincts are more doctrinal because hmm. they're, they're still caught in where is justification, yeah. right? So that's a piper, right? So hmm. piper is going to be very much saying, I have to get the gospel everywhere, but he's more doctrinally oriented than literary or historically oriented. Wow. And Carson, I would tend to say there's, the Carson has certainly expanded his tool chest. But I'd say Carson's instincts are doctrinal as well. So you have these different streams you know, of saying, we recognize there's a unifi unifying of the scriptures. God has a gospel purpose. They aren't random stories. It's, it's not just all up for grabs. God just throws a bunch of stuff in the Bible that you should know. There's a purposed aspect of the scriptures, and I think people have taken out different tools, uh, literary motif, yeah. historical uh, placement, but also doctrinal development. And, and then, you know, what I would say is I actually think the thing that trumps them all is relational interaction. How is God relating to his people graciously in a way that comes to fulfillment? So how is God showing his gracious nature in a way that comes to fulfillment in Christ? Mm. And that... That, I think, is um, what, I, what I think of as the trump card, uh, because it works everywhere, and it, particularly as I'm training students to preach, they see it more readily, and they have more confidence in it. Okay. You know, they're not confident of their, always their historical background or the literary motif. Why is that not a type, and why is that not allegory? And um, if they're doctrinally oriented, they're not sure they see the doctrine in every passage. But if you say, how is God graciously relating to his people here? How is God showing his provision for people who cannot provide for themselves? They come to it much more quickly. Yeah. And, and, and I'm happy with that because I think that is what a Hebrew would also do yeah. uh, more quickly. So that relation, you called it the relational? Relational interaction. Relational interaction as the kind of the trump card allows you to explore, would you say this, the literary, historical, and doctrinal or theological elements of each text that you're dealing with? Is I would. You, okay. I would. And, and I would say it gives you a more um, sure handle on them as well. If, you, if you're asking the question, uh, and I know there are much more advanced students here, but if, if you're just preaching this Sunday morning... Mm -hmm. And you're saying, how is God providing for people who cannot provide for themselves? Right. That's such a quick way in right. to God's revelation of his gracious nature. Yeah, just uh, scanning back through your book, I, I noticed that you have this pretty sustained focus on the fallen condition factor, right? Which mm -hmm. seems to be where you're going with is how God graciously provides for those that can't provide for themselves. Tell, tell us a little bit about how that's kind of a formative or maybe even a unique contribution, uh, I don't know, uh, of you to the discussion. Um, it, it relates to some of what I was saying in chapel the other day, that, that if Keller's terminology, if Christ is coming to the rescue, if that's the subtext throughout the scriptures, Genesis 3.15 forward, if the subtext is Christ is coming to the rescue, then there's something we're being rescued from, yeah. right? And the thing we are being rescued from is our fallen condition, yeah. right? So Genesis 3 forward, we, we are in a fallen condition as fallen creatures. Mm -hmm. And that means we are not our own redeemer. Yeah. So somehow God is making clear to his people progressively, the Voss term out, progressively, organically, 
that there has to be a redemptive work of God in our behalf. And so that means I'm not my own redeemer. I'm a fallen creature in a fallen condition. And I begin to read the scriptures by saying, not just what is here, our tendency in academic settings just to kind of do the, the informational message. Here's what's here. But rather to go behind that and say, why is it here? Yeah. What is the reason this was written? Why do we, if Paul said everything was written for us, yeah. why? Yeah. What is going on here? And, and what is going on here is that a prophet or apostle is saying, here's something you need for information. Mm -hmm. Now, that's, it's, it's that, but it's much more than that. There is a reason for it being there. And the fallen condition, if we were in a Lutheran setting and not Baptist, it's saying not just what's the reason for the text, not just what is the fallen condition, what is the burden of the text? Yeah. What's the burden that's here? And by identifying burden, you get beyond information to purpose. Mm -hmm. And inevitably, God will be saying, I got to take care of you. Right, right. I got to do something you can't do. Yeah. And, and that's getting us, I think, with fair questions and without a lot of speculation right. into the gospel thread that's being woven throughout. No, that's good. Getting past, I think I, I teach hermeneutics here, and one of the challenges is, especially with biblical narrative, which is going to be one of the more challenging aspects of Christocentric interpretation, is how to get them past information to purpose, and I think Van Hoosers and the Speech Act theories helped us understand how language works. But um, uh, but even uh, but it, it's starting to become apparent how in the Christocentric movement we are trying to get past that mere information into the purpose of the text. Um, so that's helpful. So hey, let me just pause for a minute here. We've we've kind of set the stage. We've heard from Dr. Chapel, which has been very helpful for me. Um, to, to kind of get an idea of where his, his work lands on the landscape. Do we have any, any, any quick questions on uh, yet? I'm going to just, okay, we've got one back here. Dr. Chappell, you mentioned a pulse. Got a microphone. You, now you're really significant. Now you're really, people can really hear me. Uh, you talked about the unity of the scriptures and, and some of the more contemporary people, but as you were talking about that, I was thinking of, of, of theologians like B.B. Warfield and his contributions to um, the relevance of the scripture. Is, is there any comments that you can give on perhaps Warfield's works and what he contributed to that we can appreciate today? Well, huge appreciation for Warfield. He's you know, he's not central to this discussion. So if you say, what, what discussion is he central to? The inerrancy of Scripture. I mean, his main contribution is on the integrity of Scripture more than on the unity of Scripture. Now, it's not incidental, because if, if, there, if there is no integrity, there can't be unity. But what, you know, what he is trying to do uh, is, is point not only to the integrity of Scripture, but the completeness of Scripture, which is, again, a somewhat slightly different, contributing to the unity of Scripture, but not quite where his focus was. So if he's talking about the completeness, the sufficiency, the integrity, the inerrancy of Scripture, he's, he's in that battle for the Bible that I will say again kind of eclipsed the battle for the unity of Scripture because the battle for the Bible became that which was against liberalism and, and not only set the stage but in some ways um, changed the conversation. So... I mean, just the quick rehearsal. You, you've, you've got the Hodges. Uh, you've, you've got uh, Warfield. Um, others just out of my head at the moment, you know, who are um, 
very much on the integrity of Scripture, uh, Machen, Voss comes in, before Machen, but Voss comes in and he says, um, biblical theology, identifying the unity of Scripture, is an exegetical task. And that was not only politically savvy, it was profoundly changing the conversation. Because what had happened prior to that is the great focus had been on how can I prove this piece right here, this, this word, this phrase, this verse, this doctrine, is in this text and is not countered by any other text or any other science or any archaeological discovery. This is entirely true. So the focus had come in, 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 in. And Voss comes in and he said, there's another exegetical task. And it is going out, 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 out. And um, Warfield, we love for the in, in, in. But his contribution was saying the parts have to hold for the unity to be valid. So we appreciate Warfield for saying the parts are right. But he wasn't as concerned, not, not saying he wasn't unconcerned, but he wasn't as concerned for the unity of Scripture. Uh, w could you say that, that men like Voss had kind of built on the works of Hodges and, and Warfield too? It just the unity, you had to have the, the concreteness of Scripture and the unity, was, was, was it built on their works? So uh, theologically, yes. Historically, no. I mean, Voss was coming from a different stream. So the Princetonians prior to Voss are going to be from Scottish, Scotch-Irish schools, Presbyterian. And, you know, Voss is coming from Dutch schools, Calvin to then Princeton. So while it, you know, they are wonderful lines of, and if you went back to Edwards, you would say what fed Edwards was the early Dutch thinking that's going into the Puritan method. So there's, there's some circle there, but you would have to say the Princetonians were unprepared for, for Voss because it wasn't in their conversation. So it had been a, they, they were, they were supportive of each other ultimately, but it, You'd have to say those were different conversations that came together. All right, good question. Um, so I want to transition into maybe the debate about Christocentric and Christotelic over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. And I also add in there uh, Hayes' more recent work on figural reading um, and ask you to kind of unpack the, the difference, what's going on there with, uh, with that conversation or maybe debate? So, um, I don't like the debate. <laughs> well, and why? And maybe you start be, be, there. Because, because I think it's built on straw men okay. that are untrue. Um, so, if you say, what's the difference between Christocentric and Christotelic interpretations? I would say it's a distinction without a difference as long as you are defining your terms fairly and without straw men. Mm -hmm. So where did Christotelic come from? It came out of debate going on at Westminster Seminary in, in which Christocentric was being defined in what I would basically call allegorical method, which, which you know, there were people, let me say, where's Clowney coming from? Okay. So, so Clowney by Keller, Doug Green, others, you know, there, there are those who get very caught up in kind of a literary motif. Uh, Warren Gage, who's kind of caught up in that, in that thought as well. So kind of early people re-exploring biblical theology. 
uh, go down a path that I think not many people are going down anymore. And it becomes an overblown uh, Christ in, you know, you think he'd be in the title, you know, uh, you know, Christ on every page, right. in which you're trying to identify where is Jesus by mention or reference on every page, mm-hmm. which virtually nobody is doing anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody's trying to say that. But Christocentric gets characterized as saying, oh, I'm not Christocentric. I don't believe that Jesus is on every page. I don't believe that Jesus is I'm Christotelic, saying the whole Bible points toward Christ. Well, anybody who's validly Christocentric, that is what they say. Okay. And so, as I say, it becomes, a, it becomes a distinction without a difference as long as you are not stereotyping or mischaracterizing what I think both positions are. So I'm happy to say I'm entirely Christotelic. The average person has no idea what telic means. You know, and so you say Christocentric if you say the whole Bible is revelatory of what God will do in Christ. Not every text mentions Jesus, not every verse mentions Jesus, but every text stands in some relation to the unfolding gospel message. It has a purpose in that message. So I, as I said, I find um, at, at times the debate gets hot about issues that don't need to be hot. Mm-hmm. We just need to say there, there were early explorers that made some mistakes. Mm-hmm. It, we all do. I've, I've made mistakes. Others make mistakes. But I don't think we have to then say there are these counter-movements. Mm-hmm. I want to say I'm Christotelic. I believe that there is a pointing toward in the Scriptures the ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Um, but I think many others would say the same thing and call themselves Christocentric. So I'll say again, Christocentric, you hear different things. Gospel-centered, redemptive-oriented. I mean, there are lots of substitute terms if you take it as synecdochic, right? Part for the whole. It's Christ-centered in that the whole is revelatory for Christ rather than saying every text is mentioning Christ. And I, I don't think there's any valid Christocentric theologian that is saying that. But Christocentric typically sets itself up against that straw man, which I think is, is unnecessary okay. uh, to do. I got you. Okay. Um, so in, in just kind of looking back over this debate, uh, you know, mentioned two names. Um, you know, Peter Enns, um, who's an Old Testament guy, right? And um, he, um, he says something... Uh, he says that Jesus Christ is not the is not the expected fulfillment of the Old Testament. Matter of fact, you are surprised by that when you get there. Okay, and then um, Hayes, uh, who's a New Testament, uh, actually says that we are surprised when we read back in the Old Testament through the eyes of the gospel. Um, now. Um, so I'm wondering, are they saying similar things? Are they, Hayes seems more charitable, maybe because he's a New Testament guy, and uh, uh, ends because uh, Old Testament maybe feels like uh, we're not doing justice to the Old Testament text. But um, figural reading and Christotelic, are they essentially getting at the same thing? Yes, and, and I mean, I've, I don't think you can talk about uh, Pete Enns conclusions without mentioning his path as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, I mean, Pete is going to be ultimately very suspect of supernatural readings of the mm-hmm. Old Testament, which means he has trouble not saying it's a surprise right. because canonical authorship is not something that he is going to, by his ultimate um, 
place he ends up theologically and personally, he is not going to be happy with, with a canonical authorship. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, would, I would just sadly but strongly disagree mm-hmm. and say there was a Holy Spirit that was working and did the Old Testament prophets understand all that they were saying? Mm-hmm. No. And, and, the, and the New Testament tells us right. that they did not understand all that they were saying. But the reality is I live on this side of the cross. Right. I, I cannot but live on this side of the cross and say, oh, look, they did not fully realize all that was happening. So is there a sense in which Christ was a surprise? Yes. Is there a sense in which he was the fulfillment at the same moment? Mm-hmm. Yes. And those are not contrary statements. But on this side of the cross, I'm able to see, oh, look where the path was leading, mm-hmm. which it, on, on the... Uh, Old Testament side of the cross, they could not have fully understood, Mm -hmm. and the Bible tells us they did not fully understand. But I, you know, it kind of becomes, I think, that that um, important reminder um, for Old Testament scholarship, which is saying, you know, I I need to be accurate with the text. I need to read it as the Old Testament saint would have read it. Mm -hmm. I want to say Amen to that. Authorial intent is important. But I need to also say at the very same moment, as I understood the way a Hebrew would read it, I'm not a Hebrew. I'm on this side of the cross. And I understood why they read it as they did, but I also understand where the story is leading. So that if if Bethlehem becomes David's city, um, David would not have fully understood what that meant. I have a fuller understanding that is not a census plenior, something being imposed on the text as an allegorical reading, it's an historical understanding of my place in history. Mm-hmm. I know where the story's going, and it is right for me to say where the story was going and to say it in some way surprised, and in another measure, it's precisely what God planned. Mm-hmm. And, and the canonical author, the Holy Spirit, was knitting together pieces in ways more precise and supernatural than the authors themselves knew. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jake, I mean, I just think the older I get, the more I study the scriptures, the more I kind of go, this is, this is an amazing miracle. Right. How many centuries, how many continents, how many people contributed to a consistent, there is no parallel religious book yeah. that has this level of consistency across centuries and authors with that thread of the gospel mm-hmm. so consistently woven. I mean, do we see religious books as long? Sure we do. Do we see ones as complex? Sure we do. Mm-hmm. Written by single or a few authors in a particular, but so much over, so much time, so intricately woven. I mean, it is the supernatural miracle in our laps every day. Mm-hmm. And, and that canonical authorship is what gives me reason to say, yes, I know how the Hebrews, I know I have to look at, at, at original author intent, but I do that from this side of the cross. And, and that is not denying uh, the necessity of authorial intent, nor the privileged position right. in which I now read. Yeah, and, and Hayes often talk. I mean, he, the title of his book is Reading Backwards, right? And so, and, and uh, maybe with ends, he's wanting to read in one direction. They both land on this idea of being summoned, or, or the idea of using imagination when we witness the New Testament authors reflecting upon an Old Testament text. I think they mean two different things by that. Uh, and, Thank you. And um, 
Uh, one, because of some assumptions on N's part about the nature of Scripture that most of us here would, would very likely not agree with. Hayes, on the other hand, no, has absolutely, absolutely not. <laughs> not agree with. The gospel writer, he says, the gospel writer summoned us to a conversation of the imagination, and we will learn to read scriptures rightly only if our minds and imaginations are opened by seeing the scriptural text through the evangelist's eyes. So again, he's reading backwards. I think we can agree with that. Uh, um, and he's saying something different than, than uh, uh, the, the ends in Christotelic, I think, uh, is what you would say. I am saying yeah. that. Okay. And, and I mean, the word, so imagination in the current theological discussion is a hybrid word in itself. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean, I'll just imagine it meant. Right, right. right? It, it's talking about the, the mind free by the Holy Spirit to read as intended. Yeah, that's right. right. It's, it's not just uh, free form reading. That's right. And again, where, where Enns and Hayes would disagree is even over what imagination yeah, absolutely. means. Absolutely, right. And, and we would disagree with a lot of liberal scholarship mm -hmm. right now on what imagination means. Right. It's not that we don't use our imagination, but it's something that we might have called illumination in previous generations. You know, how does the Holy Spirit illumine my reading Absolutely. by opening heart and mind with a willingness to be submissive to what the Spirit intended, not just what I imagine right. in, in the sense of creativity. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, a wonderful preacher from my youth saying, you know, unless God lifts his hand from the page, I cannot see it. Yeah. Now, he could see every term. Mm -hmm. He could define it all you know, by, by theological, but there's an understanding that the Holy Spirit enlightens my mind mm -hmm. in, in the knowledge of heart and implication um, that I need to have to truly understand the text. Right. Absolutely. Just a pause again here. Uh, we transition a little bit of a discussion of the more recent debate of Christocentric, Christotelic, and then figural reading in Hayes. Any questions? Uh, Yeah. Just I had a question just to lean in a little bit what you just said about, um, I guess, the Holy Spirit and how he helps us to understand uh, the Bible. If you can kind of maybe just talk about that a little more. Okay. Yeah, illumination. Well, uh, again, I teach preaching, so uh, let me just focus on that for the moment. I, I must tell you, I don't... I don't think I can under explain fully what I believe about that. And, and by that I mean, if I'm preparing a sermon in, in ways I do not fully understand, if the Spirit is opening my mind to the Scriptures, I think it is opening my mind more to significance than to meaning. So I think that the meaning we can pretty much lock down, historical grammatical method that that we would still endorse. But significance is um, a contribution from my background, the church, my congregation, and in ways that I cannot fully anticipate the Holy Spirit putting in my mind word choices, thoughts, illustrations that have particular significance for the people to whom I'm speaking, whose hearts are made receptive by the Holy Spirit, to receive those very words that I don't even know how they appeared in my mind. They are appropriate for explaining the text, but the Spirit is both using me, His work, and the Scriptures, and the heart of the receiver to show significance 
that is a process beyond my fathoming. And again, I'm not, I, want to I want to talk about that meaning. Not, I'm not saying meaning is changing, but significance is being communicated by me, through me, for me, and within the heart of the listener so that, uh, Calvin's terminology, God has so chosen to anoint the lips and the tongues of his servants that when they speak, the voice of Jesus yet resounds in the church. I speak and Jesus comes out. I can't fully explain that. I do believe it. And I believe it is that Holy Spirit work that's not changing the meaning of the text, but is communicating the significance of the text by God's Spirit to the hearts of his people. I was just curious as we're talking about Christocentric hermeneutics, do you feel that in any way that is causing us to not see perhaps a, a more God-centered hermeneutics of the, the triune God of the Holy Spirit as well and God the Father? Are we losing anything by, by only focusing on Christ? Or if you could just expound on that a little bit. So the, the uh, I mean, it is kind of, a again, I think a current conversation <clears throat> that hasn't been on the table till very recently, and that is Christocentric is necessarily eliminating other members of the Godhead. And um, I would say, I, again, I think it's impossible. Uh, and I will not just say it, but tell you a couple of reasons for that. <clears throat> what is the job of the Holy Spirit? Um, I mean, when, when Christ explained John 14, John 16, you know, what was the role of the Holy Spirit? The, the Holy Spirit's job is to testify of me. So if you say, what, what are the scriptures about that are Holy Spirit inspired? What is the Holy Spirit communicating to our hearts? The reality and the necessity of Christ. So there is no Christocentric reading that eliminates the Holy Spirit. Um, but the Holy Spirit's priority is testifying of Christ. So we're actually following the Holy Spirit's testimony. And if we see Christ, what do we automatically see? We see the Father. Right? So, you know, what we, we gain knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Right? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So, I, candidly, I think it's kind of a straw man again. I, I, I think it's, it, it, it's not even a discussion in the church. It, it's kind of in our, you know, we, we, we like arguing in our theological circles. And you kind of go, why are we talking about this? You know, who, who thinks that by mentioning Jesus, you're excluding God the Father? How could you even do that? But it, it, it becomes kind of a, I think it becomes a moment in discussion that that, candidly, I think we're already past because it just doesn't hold much water. Well, let me uh, just kind of bring this down to, to kind of uh, exegetical level and, and let you kind of explore uh, your the relational principle that you discuss in a text. Um, let's just take Genesis 28. Okay, it's a, a text that I require in one of my classes. So, um, you know, you have this account of Jacob being told by uh, by Isaac to go find a wife from his people. Then you have this little uh, side with Esau who's seeking to regain uh, the approval it would seem from his parents. And you have Ishmael mentioned there, uh, intratextual connection here, some of the previous texts. And then you have this journey that Jacob takes where he has uh, this encounter with uh, um, 
with the covenant God of Abraham with this ladder and angels. Uh, you have a rock with this sleeping on, and you've got a vow. And then the reaffirmation, at least partially, of the Abrahamic blessing. Um, how can you just, in, in a few minutes, explore how your relational principle can account for literary, historical, and theological elements of that text uh, in a way that is Christocentric? Where does that, uh, how does that play out? Well, L-A-D-D-E-R. Ladder has... <laughs> Six letters in it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I, do, I don't want to overplay it, but if I just said, how in that account are we learning of a God who provides for people who cannot provide for themselves? Right. So what am I learning about Jacob? He cannot take care of himself, and he does not deserve to be taken care of by God, right? He can't even get the wife he wants. Uh, all his conniving cannot uh, get the things that he wants. He's certainly not deserving. When he, when he leaves, his wife takes the idols of her father. You know, there, there's his very name, nature, is conniving. When he tries to wrestle with God, God will, in a touch, tell him, by the way, I'm stronger than you are, mm -hmm. um, and still going to take care of you, uh, and still going to bless you, though you been proven right here now. The strength is not sufficient in you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if you look at the, the long account, you know, and you say so many ways that God is saying, your cleverness is not going to help you, your conniving is not going to help you, your lying is not going to help you. You cannot provide the wife that you need. You cannot uh, search out the wife that you need. Mm -hmm. And at every stage, God is saying, I am providing mm -hmm. what you cannot provide for yourself. And ultimately, of course, we recognize in the famine that will be down the road um, and the Joseph son that will be taken, you know, every piece, God is superintending what men meant for evil, God meant for good. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, I, I, don't, I don't think I have to go to, you know, the rock that he rested his head on was Jesus. Uh, that's, that's not where I think we have to go. In fact, it's so speculative mm -hmm. that I think people will ultimately reject our message. But I don't think we have to go there. Yeah. I, I think we have to say, what, what do we learn you know, about this Jacob by all his conniving and all his lying and all of, all of his inability to get things his own way? He ends up you know, at, the, at the river with his brother coming to kill him and he's absolutely, totally alone, and he knows he's going to die. He's got no hope, mm -hmm. absolutely none. And so he wrestles with God, you know, I'll make you bless me. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And when he thinks he's won, you know, God just touches him right. and still blesses him yeah. and still grants him what he could not earn or deserve. Now, I know those are New Testament categories, but they are not out of accord with what we have been taught mm -hmm. through virtually every Old Testament account mm -hmm. that God is saying to his people, who are your forefathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Mm -hmm. You know, they were just wonderful people. Okay. <laughs> no, they weren't. Why did I choose Israel? Because they were the, you know, the best and most holy of all people. Mm -hmm. No, because they were the dinkiest, awfulest people. Mm -hmm. If I could save Israel, I can save anybody. Mm -hmm. You know, And that that message of a God who's relating to a people who do not deserve it, cannot provide for themselves, is the unfolding gospel that comes to fulfillment in Christ. 
And, you know, if I were preaching those passages, uh, I've got your questions here in front of me, Jake. You know, would I say, you know, that I've got to mention Jesus in that sermon? When I say, you know, God is providing for Jacob in ways. And, And I would say, you know, if you logically press me, you know, do you have to mention Jesus in every sermon in the Old when it's, he's not on the text? I will say, okay, no. But why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if God has said, here is, here is humanity that cannot redeem itself, mm-hmm. why would I end the message there mm-hmm. and not say this message comes to its culmination in what God says is the end of this story? Now, we're not going to read the whole story this Sunday. No, we're only going to read... Uh, this account of Jacob or some aspect of his life. But I know where the story goes. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fair to tell people where the story goes. God will ultimately provide for people like us who depend on our own strength and conniving by saying, you're not your redeemer. Mm -hmm. And he is using Jacob and Israel and all of history to tell us of the necessity of that one. Mm -hmm. And in that particular text, you, you see this little narrative aside with Esau, who is the unchosen son, right? So uh, I tend to try to push my students towards this idea of Jacob as the chosen son, which is, again, a development of, um, in Genesis, um, this idea of God's sovereign choice, this wounded victor in 315, this idea of a sonship motif that, that seems to morph over the course. And so, to me, even that is, is, uh, is, is something inherent in the text. You have to do something with Esau and Jacob and uh, maybe as a foil. Uh, what do you think? Well, Paul's certainly going to do it. Yeah. You know, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And, and we, we may not like it, but clearly the Bible is saying that there are sovereign choices of God that I'll, I will quickly go on to say... There is not no blessing to Esau. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's promised nation too. He's not a Canaanite. He's not a Canaanite. So you would have to, but it, but it is not the same blessing. Right. And it is the blessing that is pointing people to the God of Abraham, mm-hmm. Isaac and Jacob, for ultimate blessing, not ultimately the path of Esau. So while there is sovereign choice there, there is also human decision that is being monitored. You know, it's saying, you, there's a way of Jacob, there's a way of Esau. Right. And, and it's not that God's hand is not with some blessing in both. Right. But, but there are aspects of what God is still calling us to responsibility and saying, there, there are still paths here of which you should be aware. Right. So, um, I mean, as I said, you know, Romans 9, Paul is certainly going to make much of the Jacob and Esau distinction. But, but even in Romans 9... You know, why is he making that distinction? Mm-hmm. Because he is setting forth a way of life and a way of death right. to call people to responsibility. And ultimately, what is he saying there? I mean, we, we so often forget what's happening, the dynamics of Romans 9, is for Paul to be saying, this is not just the choice of the Jews. Not all Israel is Israel. Mm-hmm. Those who are now Gentiles, who are part of the church, are receiving the blessings of Jacob. Mm-hmm. This was not an exclusionary passage. Mm -hmm. This is an inclusionary passage to show that the gospel was intended for the Gentiles as well. And and so, but he's saying, there are paths here. Better to be on the Jacob path. Right, right. That's helpful. Any questions uh, about just interpretation of Genesis 28, some of the debate? Uh, Just open the floor up to kind of any follow-up questions. 
right, we've, we've solved this problem. <laughs> Amazing. Here, in an hour, we did it. Yeah. And Jake, I, I mean, I would say, now again, I'm in a pastoral situation. And, and I guess I would say, th those are some of my instincts that, that I would say, you know, I, I mean, I was in a seminary setting for 30 years, so I deeply, profoundly appreciate that. But you know, in a, in a seminary setting where we love engaging ideas and sparring with one another, it's easier to push people apart yeah. than it is to pull them together. Yeah. And, and, and I would look, even as you're kind of finding your way through Christotelic um, theological interpretations of the Bible, uh, Christocentric, redemptive-oriented, gospel-oriented, uh, all those discussions ultimately you've got to minister to people. That's right. Ultimately, you, you, you have to say to people, how is Christ ministering to your heart? Yeah. And, and uh, while I want to demean nothing of what happens in these settings, you know, people who want to say, you know, I'm of Clowney, I'm of Keller, I'm of Gordanus, I'm of Goldsworthy, I'm of Allen, I'm of N.T. Wright, I, I kind of say, you know, I don't really care. <laughs> I want to know if by the time people leave your message, do they love your Savior? Yeah. And do they know He's their Redeemer? Yeah. And that's more than an informational message. That is saying, you had a goal this day. And Paul said, I, I, I would abandon everything uh, if only I could make known the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I would hope we would yeah. make our ethic as well. No, it's good. I, I, I hope what you guys uh, witness in this is um, the, the necessity of assessing our own disposition towards those that have different, um, different convictions, different perspectives, uh, you know, to read charitably, uh, to read closely, to read graciously, critically, um, and those two have to go together. Um, but don't paint with broad brushstrokes, uh, you know, with you having to put or choosing to put Christ-centered preaching on your book. Uh, there's a tendency to maybe just, just like pigeonhole you. And what we've learned, even in this hour, is that that approach is way more nuanced than maybe any of us thought was the case. And that's the case with most people that are thinking through these things. And so, um, so yeah, be charitable. Um, don't paint with broad brush strokes. Don't pigeonhole. Um, and ultimately realize that we're, all, we're on the same team, right? And um, so very helpful. Do you have any um, suggestions for some books for further reading, uh, or uh, maybe just we'll, we'll end with that uh, we haven't already mentioned? Uh, Keller's book on preaching, I think, it takes right. takes one approach on this. You know, for and you were kind, Jake, to mention uh, Christ-centered preaching. For for decades, people were pushing me. Can you please put something for lay people that helps Sunday school teachers or counselors or parents understand what this is? So a, a little personal plug here, but just the little book, Unlimited Grace. That's all it's called. Okay. By, by, is is not what you want to read, but you can put in the hands of Absolutely. Sunday school teachers or or and just as trying to say, how do you see the gospel unfolding, and not just teach your children or your Sunday school class you know, be, be better than you were last week. Mm -hmm. You know, what's, what's a way in which the gospel can work its way into your Sunday school lesson? Yeah, absolutely.